Hello again. Hello. I had to go over there and turn up the AC. My wife likes to leave it down because of the cats overnight. Right. She doesn't want to freeze them out. You know, sometimes wake up and they're sneezing or something. All right, let's just keep it down. But now I'm starting to sweat already. So I'm like, fuck, let's just kind of turn that thing up. And that's when you call. <laughs> All right, let's start Roman Polanski. All right. Listening to Weird Since Inside the Goldmine, your central guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Tonight, Roman Polanski, only here on the new and improved Third Eye Cinema Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Well, good evening, and welcome to the third episode of the 11th season of Weirds Inside the Goldmine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell and join me, Doc Savage, and my co-host, Mr. Lewis Paul, as we discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult film, music, television, and more. So, thanks for joining us tonight. Once again, we are going to be talking about Roman Polanski in a bit. Those of you who had been following us on the Twitter or on the Facebook page, you probably were expecting... Well, for one thing, that not that we would be delayed by over a month here, but we had mentioned that there was going to be a big surprise, and we were really excited. And unfortunately, that sort of fell through. Uh, we were supposed to have a well-known fellow critic of film who's been on a lot of commentaries and runs a film-related magazine and has been on all sorts of DVDs and things like that and Blu-rays and all the internet as well. Does her own podcast. But unfortunately, I guess some wires got crossed. Things fell through at the end. So... That was the delay. We were kind of waiting to work between everybody's schedules and get things rolling here. And it seemed like it was going to happen. You know, the, everybody was very enthusiastic about it on all sides. But uh, I guess things happened. Things changed. People got busy. So may happen again in the future. I won't discount it. And I'm not going to say who it was just because of that. But nonetheless, so we apologize that that was the big delay. And that's what we were excited about. It would yeah. have been very exciting. Yeah, but, you know, you never say never. Yeah, I, I still wholly believe that at some point it will happen. But... That was the big surprise. So unfortunately, it's not happening at this time. <laughs> You're supposed to be with us for a couple of podcasts, actually. So I was really juiced up about this one. But uh, as it is, we will continue as usual. And sometime in the future, you know, I won't even say the olive branch. There's no problem there. It's just yeah. the hand is extended, and she knows this. So it may happen again sometime down the road. Or, or someone else. You know, yeah. there, there are a couple of people out there that they want to join for one or a few uh, that I wouldn't mind. Yeah, I mean, no. I've got several people who are on my personal uh, Facebook yeah. feed. They know who they are. And they're all more than welcome. And actually, uh, I had interviewed one of them way back when, a very prominent one as well. And he's also on my feed and friendly with him. So, you know, any of you guys that are interested, you're welcome to hop on board. It's just unfortunate that at this time, yeah. uh, this planned venture didn't go through. So, again, we'll see. Maybe down the road. So anyway, back to the Polanski here. Roman Polanski was a man who achieved some notable success in the film industry, with his work earning him no less than five Oscar nominations. He won Best Director in 2003, two Golden Globe Awards, two BAFTAs, basically the British equivalent of the Oscar, and the French equivalent of the Oscar, the Palme d'Or at Cannes in 2002, among others. 
And yet, despite several of his films being notable, even considered classics over the years by critics and audiences alike, what most people associate with him is scandal and crime. One horrible incident was perpetrated against his family, and a later one that not only nearly derailed his career, but continues to surface in more recent years, unfortunately. So, unlike when we did a show on Klaus Kinski, it's actually kind of impossible to discuss his films without getting into these incidents to one extent or another, particularly as these and his horrific childhood inside Fortress Europe and the Iron Curtain during and after World War II. So I think we should follow his lifetime line a bit before digging into the films themselves, just to clear the shadows out of the way and make a better sense of the man's work thereafter. Polanski is a Pole, Polish, of Jewish extraction, born in Paris in 1933. Fortunately for the family, his parents decided to move back to Krakow in 1937, exactly a year or two prior to Hitler's invasion of Poland, which was the official start of World War II, those of you who know your history. He actually watched when his father was taken away to an Austrian concentration camp, kind of like those of you who watched the early X-Men films from Fox. You know, Magneto has his parents pulled away from him. Same thing, unfortunately. And afraid that his son might be spotted by German soldiers, he actually whispered to him in Polish, get lost, get out of here. Then his mother was taken in a later raid and sent to Auschwitz, where she was killed. So, as such, Polanski spent his formative years bouncing around foster homes under different names, despite the fact that helping a Jew in Nazi-occupied Poland means death. So, thanks to some good-hearted and brave people, he survived the Holocaust. Apparently, he was once forced to take part in a sadistic game in which German soldiers took shots at him for target practice. That's a quote from online. This background, combined with some serious misfortune later in his life and career, led to his rather Kafkaesque narratives, frequent attention to different iterations of neurosis, use of shocking violence for the era, and an overarching sense of doom in his cinema. The bad luck continued. After the war, he was reunited with his father, and who survived this, and moved back to Krakow, at which point that had fallen under the thumb of the Iron Curtain. Yay! And Polanski later stated that you must live in a communist country to really understand how bad it can be. Then you will appreciate capitalism. Everybody out there should listen to that one. This wasn't all. Years later, in August 1969, less than a year after marrying Sharon Tate, who he had met while directing her for The Fields Vampire Killers, and while working in London, Tate, who was pregnant, and four friends were murdered at the Polanski's residence in Los Angeles by the Manson family. And just as much, if not more so, than all those traumatic experiences we just mentioned, this was a major factor in his life and works. Quote from him, Sharon's death is the only watershed in my life that really matters. Her murder changed my personality from a, quote, boundless sea of expectation and optimism to one of, quote, ingrained pessimism and internal dissatisfaction with life. The reporting about Sharon and the murders particularly upset him. I couldn't believe my eyes. They were blamed the victims for their own murders. Yeah, that sounds like the presser, right? But that wasn't all the tragedy in store for him. There's an excellent documentary out in this one called Wanted and Desired that brings out a lot of facts beneath the media hysteria at the time. And again, when an extradition request brought it back to the attention of the general public decades later. But the first thing you need to keep in mind is that regardless of what you decide on reviewing all of the evidence, it was a very different time. This was the 60s and early 70s. It was actually a surprisingly common occurrence in the age of hippies and free-living hitchhikers. Remember gas grass or ass or custom vans where the back was tricked out as a mobile bedroom with those, if this van's a rockin', don't come and knockin' things? I mean, come on. It was even all over the radio. It's Songs like Come Up the Years from Jefferson Airplane, Super Lungs by Donovan. It, it's everywhere. People just grew up faster in those days and tried to look and live well beyond the years by contemporary standards. I mean, you just look at some of those movies of the disco era and just realize a lot of those girls, they were like 16 and 17. They look like they're in their 30s. So even in the documentary, counsel from the trial admitted that not only the judge himself have two 30-year younger girlfriends, 20 to his 53, and claimed that he'd have done the same only better that was his words, but the DA prosecutor was specifically chosen because he was very religious and the only guy in the firm who hadn't slept with an underage girl at that entire firm. 
So this says just how skewed all this bullshit is. So you're discussing the 1977 yes, thing? Yes, the, okay. the case, yeah. And, and that, there's so many things about that that are... Fishy. Fishy. I mean, no, I'm not saying that he did not have drugs. And then, oh, yeah, nobody's saying he's great or anything. It's just it happened a lot, and everybody was guilty. And, and had sex with the girl. Well, yeah. Okay, she was 13. Yeah. But... She was a frequent guest at the Jack Nichols. I mean, and her mother was okay with all this and everything else. I mean, it's crazy. There's a lot of stuff in there. So Jack Nicholson did not have sex. What was she doing? <laughs> yeah. And she was there often. I mean, it's like, do we need to like fill in the holes of this story? Yeah. There's so but, many. Oh, you know, it's, it's he was picked mm-hmm. to be a scapegoat, especially since he's a foreigner. So. Unfortunately, too. Unfortunately, though, this comes up a lot with other women. Yep. And it's hard to say, you know, is he, I don't know. Nobody's saying he's a swell guy. Right, don't get that right. from this. But what we're saying is it was very common. The judge was equally implicated and had no issue with it. The uh, DA's office were all equally implicated and wouldn't be involved with it because of this. They just found one guy who was very religious and the press jumped on it and there you mm-hmm. go. So we have the issue that we have nowadays. It's not quite the same thing as far as we can tell. And I, again, I recommend that documentary I had mentioned so you get a better picture of it and make up your own mind. But it's not like a Harvey Weinstein thing. This is more like it was unfortunately very common back then in a very different time. Yeah, but all the way up until recently, this thing has been dogging him because. Uh, yep. Well, they brought it up again. In they brought it up years. again. Yeah, in 2004, uh, Vanity Fair magazine published an article. Of course, they wanted to dig the, you know, dig it out. Yep. And they also said, allegedly, that uh, some Scandinavian model or a- actress or would be actress claimed that uh, he was trying to seduce her on the way to Sarah Tate's funeral. Apparently, though, Mia Farrow was with Roman at the time, so she she helped him out with that, and he actually won that court, you know, because he, he, he brought a libel suit against him. Then uh, Polanski also was suing for libel and defamation of character when uh, some filmmaker had, again, in several articles... And uh, in the Paris Match magazine, in the interview with this filmmaker, just kind of wanted to destroy his career. It was even the UK's News of the World. And then the story in 2010 was covered by the French paper Liberation. Um, was it Liberation? <laughs> well, remember one thing just for a second. News of the World is the equivalent of the National Enquirer. Right, right, so, you know. right. <laughs> right. But in that... There was like this fake interview with Charlotte Lewis, the actress, whatever happened there. And where she claimed that, you know, she when she was 16 and Polanski was 50, I think it's about the time he was directing that terrible Pirates um, or afterwards that she and Polanski had relations, you know, a particular way. Thing was, years later, she's like, no. I, I wish we, she goes, I wish we had a physical relationship. I wish we had a romantic relationship. You can't help falling in love with them. That's a quote from Charlotte Lewis. So again, he got out of that. But, you know, this thing just dogs him and dogs him until finally he uh, is banned from several countries. Is this correct? He can't come back to the U.S. And this another country he's not allowed to go to. 
Yes, there's several countries in Latvia. Several countries, yes, because he could get extradited to the United States because he got the hell out. He left, um, you know, right around the time of uh, that court case. He fled. Well, the gist of all this, regardless, in 1977, Polanski was arrested and charged with sharing drugs with and having relations with an underage girl who was modeling for him in a magazine-sponsored photo shoot, as you mentioned, at Jack Nicholson's place and all the other details. As a result of a plea bargain, he pleaded guilty to the lesser offense of unlawful sex with a minor. In 1978, upon learning that the judge planned to reject a previously agreed-upon plea bargain for probation to impose a 50-year prison sentence instead, again, pressure from the media and whoever the hell else... I made this guy flip-flop. He already made a decision, and he flip-flopped on it, kind of like our lovely Supreme Court justices, as they uh, promised in the hearings beforehand before getting allowed to get on the Supreme Court, and then flip-flopped totally. So anyway, as a result, he had to flee to Paris. So he went on the Interpol red list now, making him a fugitive and limiting his movements to France, Switzerland, or Poland, as he could no longer work in any other country where he might face arrest or extradition to the U.S., Nonetheless, he was still arrested decades later in Switzerland. September 2009, based on an extradition request, jailed for two months and put under house arrest while awaiting appeal. This, of course, brought attentions back to this decades-old case at that point. As a point of interest, Polensky's alleged victim, Samantha Geimer, criticized modern-day protesters as very opportunistic, that's the victim herself saying this, and said that, quote, if you want to change the world today, you do it by demanding people be held accountable today, not by picking someone who is famous and demonizing him for things that happened decades ago, as if that has any value in protecting people and changing society. Hello, me too. She also stated that she forgave Polanski and said that she did not view herself as a victim. Quote, don't wish for him to be held to further punishment or consequences. Further, she blamed the media, the reporters, the court, and the judge for having caused, quote, way more damage to me and my family than anything Roman Polanski had ever done, pointing out something the documentary makes extremely clear, that the judge was using her and Polanski for media exposure. What a swell guy. L.A. Deputy David Wells, the religious guy, whose statements were the most damning against Polanski and who advised the judge to throw Polanski in jail, later admitted that he lied about those very statements to play up his own role to the press. What a swell bunch of guys, huh? In December 2009, a California appellate court discussed the firm's allegations based on the film's uncovering of many of these details and Polanski's subsequent request to have the case dismissed. The court stated that the allegations in Polanski's defense were, quote, in many cases supported by considerable evidence and noted that, quote, the court's fundamental concern about the alleged misconduct, but decided nonetheless that his flight from extradition was, quote, not Polanski's best option and suggested he make use of further legal options, therefore. Regardless of all these facts of the matter, one way or the other, and however you feel about this, because, you know, it's open to interpretation in a lot of ways, it's just clear that everybody's freaking corrupt here. In May 2018, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences voted to expel Polanski from its membership. So that's all the background details you really need to know. I'm sure some more of this will come up in minor parts as we go along through the timeline in the films. But uh, that gives you a background of why Polanski's films are the way they are and what informs a lot of what you're going to see and what we'll be talking about tonight. So is there anything else that you wanted to say? Yeah, no, no. I, I really want to get into the films now because even, even though uh, there's a few of them... As a film director who's been working since 62, thankfully there's not more than what there is now. So uh, Knife in the Water, 1962, is his only film that was lensed in his native Poland. Hypnotically boring, no-budget debut, filmed entirely within the confines of a crappy car and a small sailboat. Using a three-man cast, well, okay, one is female, but 
almost none of whom had ever acted before and therefore were entirely post-dubbed by Polanski and a female assistant, he delivers a sort of crazy fruit without the action-slash-sun-tribe affair that is neither fish nor fowl. On the other hand, you could praise the difficulty of filming in such cramped quarters and the well-lighted cinematography, but you can see he's trying to achieve this sort of existential bleakness Antonioni made his wheelhouse with elements of the cheap, steamy Greek melodrama of Doris Wishman's Hot Month of August or Passion Fever, but fails on both counts. Despite a jazzy soundtrack and some bleak chiaroscuro cinematography contrasted with the blazing sun, there's very little sex here and not enough drama, confrontation, or sense of ennui. I'd rather spend my time with a Mac Pekus crime film of the same era, not to mention the others aforementioned. It's watchable in a soporific sense, but it does precious little to earn its inflated reputation. Yeah, uh, well, I mean, something you, you didn't mention was that uh, basically it's a couple and then a, the young man joins the couple, you know, and then mm. on the boat, there's sexual tensions and then, you know, without giving too much away. But the funny thing is this this is like the original picture that this uh, mise-en-scene, this scenario played out because it's been remade so many times, not Knife in the Water mm. specifically, but what happened here. Yeah, how about that uh, Nicole Kidman one, that her big debut? Is, is that the same picture of Billy Zane and Sam Neill? I think so, yes. Yeah, that one was very successful. A lot of people did not like it because it was just unsavory, you know, and, and, and weird. Yeah. It's like Cape Fear on, on the water, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, but yeah, this, this it, it, a lot of people call, you know, Criterion's been remastering this damn thing so many <laughs> times from the elements a lot of people uh, have been trying to just keep coming up with new ways to tell a story with only three characters. Uh, mm-hmm. But this is the original. Uh, I don't love this film, but uh, I, I do want to acknowledge that it's an interesting movie for yeah. what it is. So after this, Polanski made three feature films in England. Uh, Repulsion in 65, Cul-de-sac in 66, and The Fearless Vampire Kills in 67, which is the one where he met his future wife, Sharon Tate. So first off was Repulsion, far more tense and uncomfortable film with a sort of Dementia 13 vibe, but more of a Hitchcockian psychological thriller approach. Think Spellbound or more of a stretch Marnie, Psycho, or even William Castle's Homicidal, just with less thrills and without any surprise reveal at the end. You might want to think twice about dating a hairstylist after this one. Francois Dorliac's icy little sister, Catherine Deneuve, of Buñuel's Belle de Jour and the Burt Reynolds film Hustle, another guy we did a show on, is a weird and frigid woman coping with some form of social anxiety. She lives with her sister, Yvonne Fourneau, but gets weird about hearing her having sex through the wall. John Fraser of Norman Warren's Schizo, who we also did a show on, and a study in terror tries to shut her up, getting so far as driving her home from work and going for a bit of a snog, but she freaks out at him and goes all OCD. When the sister and her beau, Ian Hendry, Dr. Keel of the early Avengers series, which we did a show on, as well as Captain Kronos, we did a Hammer show, and the Michael Caine Get Carter, we did a Michael Caine show, <laughs> Antonio Needs the Passenger, and the Internecine Project, go off on a dirty weekend. Our heroine totally flips, seeing things like hands that grope her through the wall, Ultravox style, remember the Thin Wall video? Imagining she got raped by a non-existent intruder, and leaving a decapitated rabbit in her sister's things. Poor Fraser shows up at her place and she kills him. Then her sleazy landlord, Patrick Weimark of Amicus of the Skull, another company we did show on, uh, Disney's Dr. Sin, Where Eagles Dare, and Blood on Satan's Claw, who tries to take the rent out in trade. At least this guy deserved to get killed. Uh, that's it. Forno and Henry return home to find all the carnage. Deneuve smiles at the camera, clearly cracked. And that's it. As a psychological thriller, it leaves much to be desired. It's obvious from the first moments of the film that something very wrong with Deneuve, so there's no surprises for modern audiences. Much of the action, such as it is, 
takes place within the confines of their bleak little shared apartment, so it's not exactly visually sumptuous either. Our flawed heroine doesn't speak or interact much, so it's entirely on the incidental characters to carry what scenes they inhabit, and about the only thing you could say about it is that it's bleak and claustrophobic like a Bergman film. It's another highly, highly overpraised film in his oeuvre. For my money, he hadn't yet come into his own. I never, ever liked this film. It's an uncomfortable movie to watch. Um, that being said, if it was made... 65? 75, 85, 95. If it was made today, let's say this film was not made, so somebody would have came up with the idea. But if the film was made today, you could see that character probably using social media, never leaving the apartment, and starting to lose her mind as well, and starting to document, like, I opened the door today. I think I will take a shower. Yeah, I think it would be a much better film in that respect. (laughs) No, but it's saying, this is, because there's no... There's no media like that back then. I'm sure the character probably would have still lost her mind, except she probably would have given hints out, not purposefully to, to, uh, that's the thing. Nobody knows, but then again, nobody cares. Yeah. She was a social anxiety incel, bottom line. Yeah, yeah. It's a very strange film. I, I not one I like. And no. he got even stranger with the next film. Yeah, but that like the next film. Uh, cul-de-sac. <laughs> now, this is more like it. Sleazy and downright decadent. We talked this one on our Donald Pleasant show. Mm-hmm. The much sexier and earthier sister of Repulsion's icy Catherine Deneuve, Francois Dorliac, and her kinky gender-bending husband, Pleasance, find themselves in a home invasion situation when some gangsters, the blacklisted Lionel Stander, best known as Max from Heart to Heart, and Jack McGowan of The Quiet Man, Darby O'Gill with Sean Connery, another we did a show on. And the Exorcist. Yes, and the later Fearless Vampire Killers among them take refuge there. Things get complicated when some jet-setting party friends show up for a visit, and Stander pretends to be their butler while sexual sparks and booze abound. There's even another of my favorite ladies, Jacqueline Bissett, on hand in only her second film role. Finally, violence erupts, and the luckless couple are left to fend with the consequences from both criminals and police alike, leading to emotional and perhaps mental breakdown. Like one of those great Max Pekas crime films, Torment, Heat of Midnight, Five Wild Girls, The Slave, this is a hothouse confection of crime picture, siege film, and perversely erotic thriller set in a bleak and remote chateau overlooking the sea. It brings classics of Humphrey Bogart's The Petrified Forest, which we talked in our Bogart show, very much to mind, but with a much more lavish and visually sumptuous seaside setting, and a whole lot more kink. Did I mention the BDSM-style relationship switching? Pleasance's character would seem to be the authority figure by then standards. He's older, a bit too much, actually. It's his little castle-come-chateau, but it turns out he's a bit of a weak sister. She's younger and wilder and wants more out of life than he can offer. It turns out he blew all his money purchasing the place, and yet it's drafty and impossible to heat in winter, among other issues. She dresses him up in women's clothes and makeup, but the implication is more than just a bedroom kink. When Stander arrives, the two develop a bit of a homoerotic relationship, at least in terms of some fairly blatant subtext. I mean, check out all that dialogue and body language in the beach scene, where Stander gets him drunk, and Dorliac goes off into the surf nude for a length of time. Then Stander takes a submissive role as the butler throughout the visit of Pleasance's friends. And later, not only does Dorliac wind up as the dominant personality of the couple, but of both men, resulting in Stander's demise and Pleasance's breakdown. There's a lot to unpack here, and it's not all spelled out in flashing neon for the incurious. In the end, it still taps Polanski's obsessions with sex, violence, and the dissolution of self in the face of a bleak and unforgiving world. But unlike the half-measures of the last two films, here he finally gets his shit together and delivers. No wonder mainstream sources never discussed this film. It's actually one of his best. Oh, no, I, I 
don't know what I could add to what you say. It's it's a very good film. It's not a very likable movie. You can't like every film. <laughs> you know, you can, <laughs> you can watch something and say, this is a great movie. This is a very good movie. This is a good movie. This sucks, so on and so forth. But you can also mm-hmm. not like something. And still appreciate it. Right, and still appreciate it. And so I appreciate this film without loving it. It's so weird. It's so weird. Uh, even folks, you could probably not seen this film. I, I've seen it in a few, not too many trailer compilations, but I'm sure there's a trailer on YouTube or something. And even then, it doesn't give a lot away. It makes it seem even more disjointed because it's a very strange movie. And yes, the interesting to see Lionel Standard in this uh, role, really pushing the boundaries of what you would have thought someone physically like him would be doing very very interesting yeah especially for the time it was put out it was very ahead of its time and very kinky and a lot of substacks in there of all types i mean it really goes everywhere that you would not imagine it would mm. transgressive film so next up the fearless vampire killers weird horror comedy that seems equally informed by russian fantasy films hammer horror and volumes seldom discuss blood and roses more lush and visually stunning than similar fare like kiss of the vampire or brides of dracula this almost comes up like some fucked up children's film of the era like rumpelstiltskin jack and the beanstalk or hersha gordon lewis's jimmy the boy wonder not to mention similar fare from nudie specialist gone children's film author barry mayan there's precious little to discuss that isn't given away by saying the title is somewhat ironic the plot is rather straightforward and can easily be guessed other than to note the ballroom scenes swiped and reimagined from the aforementioned vadim film sounds the lavender overtones. The weird comedy, particularly Jack McGowan's bulbous-nosed Jim Blossom-bedecked and quite dim-witted Professor Abronzius, really skews this film. Even as a child, I was more fascinated by the sumptuous, vibrant fantasy visuals in the oddly claustrophobic inn, castle, and winter forest settings than anything else. It's kind of hard to stomach as a horror, and not even as barely a smirk eliciting, quote, funny, as The Vampire Happening, a film I vastly enjoy by comparison, which also stars Ferdy Mann as the lead vampire. I do love the changes to the MGM logo in the beginning, though. Those are great. You could be snarky and say the best thing to come out of this film was the Bad Brains song of the same title, but it is strangely quite watchable, even cozy if you're in the right mood. And Sharon Tate is absolutely stunning here. It's easy to see why he fell head over heels for her on set. I love this film. Now, have, yeah, having just said what I said about cul-de-sac and uh, one's own interpretation of it's all it's a subjective genre and, you know, a subjective thing anyway, watching a film, listening to music, listening to all the different kinds of music out there. Yeah, everything's subjective. So so is cinema. But I love this movie. It actually was originally called Dance of the Vampire. Yes, it's originally, you know, British film. Um, I guess nobody knew what to do with it, so they, for the uh, for other markets, English-speaking markets like America, Fearless Vampire Killers, or, pardon me, but your teeth are in my neck, and I actually was on the posters, Yes, uh, and it was shortened to the Fearless Vampire Killers. I just love this film. My drummer loves it, too, just so you know. <laughs> well, gorgeously photographed by, uh, was it Douglas Slocum? I think so. And yeah. it, it's got an icy, cold... I mean, he really, I mean, this is like, this is, if Hammer had a lot more money mm-hmm. and had, I, during, Hammer, yeah, we've done so many Hammer shows over the years, you know, and, mm-hmm. and covered so many, like Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing, we've done so many other things that all revolved around the world of Hammer. Mm-hmm. So we discussed those things to death. But this is like a Hammer film with a big budget, you know. Like I said, it's got that Russian fantasy film feel. Yeah, to yeah, it, right? it does. But it, it, it's just so gorgeous, this thing. And you've yeah. got a real 
Why do I love this film? First of all, it really captures, you feel cold watching it. Oh, There's yeah. a few movies I view and I feel cold watching, like John Carpenter's The Thing. I'm like, damn, I better like put the heat up, you know. <laughs> How about Where Eagles Dare? Where Eagles Dare. I, said, I love that movie. Mm-hmm. We never talked about that film. Um, no, we didn't. So uh, the fearless van, you know, snowy, and actually not until the castle scenes later on, where there's the big ball, mm-hmm. the, the cast is kind of small for the most part until later on in the film. And there's poor village, and I don't know, them, that those sound stages are outrageous. You know, uh, all the fake snow, I'm sure they used. And- you know, it's got a slight feel of, but I think that film's better too. That Yugoslavian German film. Do you remember the vampire film I'm talking about? Cave of the Vampires, Cave of the Living Dead, I think it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, that is similar. Uh, it's in black and white, though, but it is similar. Yeah, yeah. But no, I, I just love this film. I love how it looks. Um, yeah, Sharon Tate's amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. They, they kind of pushed it a little bit with some of the, the way he photographed her, and I guess she was game to be nearly naked a lot. <laughs> Uh, Alfie Bass is terrific as the uh, innkeeper, I guess. The innkeeper, right? Who who, who gets bitten, becomes a vampire, but he's Jewish, right? Yes. <laughs> so he has some great lines. Uh, they're actually pretty funny. Which Jeff- actually reminds me there of uh, Disciple of Death, the Mike Raven film. Remember there, yes. the, the Jewish mystic there. Yes. This isn't that a Christian smudges. <laughs> and then Jack McGowan as this like human. He looks like a human puppet. <laughs> it's really weird. <laughs> As this uh, crazy here, that's a wig, folks, or, or or they really tasseled with his hair, mm-hmm. vampire hunter, and oh, Polanski himself. Yes. In a major role. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is really funny because if you look at, I've seen some of the um, posters from other countries as well, and they really don't play up that actually Roman's in the film. Actually, Roman's. Pretty much starring in a film. He's the second. I would say he's the second lead. Yeah. I think just this and the tenant were the ones where he really kind of starred in them. Yeah. But uh, really, really interesting. Uh, Ferdy Main was great. He reprised this, not the same character, but this kind of role a couple of times later on in later years. Then there was a thing called the horror fan or something like that, where he was like this. Uh, actor or maybe it was a short film oh was that the nightmare or something like that i remember that from the early 80s right 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 yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that was very you know very interesting but anyway yeah i thought roman polanski i give him a lot of credit you know he's on screen almost the entire time and and it's also tense and it's also unnerving and it's also very claustrophobic claustrophobic just despite you know when they the you're in the castle. It's huge. I don't know where the hell they shot it. And I, I'm sure someone, you know, if our, our co-host that was going to, but not, probably knew things like that. Oh, I know that castle. <laughs> uh, or the name of it or where it's located. Because I can't imagine that would have been a set. It's just too big. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of weird sexual stuff going on besides mm-hmm. you. Hey, oh, folks. yeah. There's definitely some homoerotic ones. There's, there's a very gay vampire that gets really interested in Polanski. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Which why I mentioned Brides of Dracula earlier, but okay. <laughs> and, 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 you know, he's chasing, he's chasing Roman around the castle at some point. <laughs> yes. Right, Roman plays Alfred, right? Jack McGowan plays Professor Bontius. Who was Ferdy? Oh, Count Von Krolock was Ferdy Main. Mm-hmm. And, uh, 
You see, my problem with this film always and still is mm. that the comedy is so overstated. I don't mind a little bit of subtle Joker, you know, like uh, even something like, uh, what is it, the horrible sexy vampire or whatever. It's fine. You know, it's like, okay, well, you got a little bit of comedy in there, but it's still basically a horror film. Or the other one that everybody gets pissed off at, the Desorio film. Not Hannah Quinn, the vampires. What is it, Malenka? Malenka. Yeah, you know, I was like, oh, there's too much comedy. I was like, oh, it's okay. It's It fits in with the rest of this whole village horror type movie. But this one here is very slapsticky. I, I really get the impression Polanski would have been or was a huge fan of, like, the Three Stooges. And, okay, if you like that stuff, fine. You know, I've gotten into them a little more in my later life than I used to. But it's just so over the top. And I'm like, no... No, I mean, even like I mentioned, the vampire happening. Even that works better than this in that respect. It's just if they had taken that out or really toned it down, it probably would have been a great film. I really would have loved it. And just for all the atmosphere and everything else you had mentioned, but it's just so over the top. I'm like, oh. <laughs> oh yeah. As we're talking though, I'm actually reading um, that it was supposed to be a lot of the outdoor stuff was supposed to be shot in Austria. But uh, it was shot in, in a nearest in a, a ski resort in the Italian Dolomites, so yeah. in the mountains here. In the Alps, there probably. Yeah. In the Alps, yeah. It's, it's, it just looks so beautiful, though. So they probably dressed up a lot of outdoor stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, just to. I, I just love this movie. I just love this movie. It also, was cut. I I, I forgot. Yeah, because doesn't it run like two and a half hours or something? The real unedited version. Uh, no, I think it's more like. Uh, it's long. It's long, but it's. Let me see what I can find. No, it's not that long. It's 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 probably an hour and forty-eight minutes, almost almost two hours. But it got cut down to like an hour and a half. Yeah. So yeah. probably lost about eighteen minutes of footage, which probably probably was the horror stuff. You know, <laughs> and trying and I'm sure MGM probably tried to really. You know, sell is like comedy, and 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 but with the horror stuff fully in it, I just I just like this movie. It's just so weird, and it looks just so good. Yeah, and you bizarre. know, he's he is a director though. It's never consistent with anything. The next <laughs> film is huge movie. Yeah, Paramount brought Polanski to America to direct Rosemary's Baby. One of many paranoia-afflicted novels from Ira Levin is adapted by Polanski, marking one of, if not his biggest commercial hit. I had a friend in college who was, strangely enough, planning on entering the priesthood. And I say strangely because he was interested in paganism and Wiccan practices and was, if he were to be believed, more lucky than any two guys I know. Apparently, it got him laid a lot. Like he claimed one said to him, I'll be the one you remember for the rest of your celibate life or some shit. <laughs> Don't ask me. Anyway, he had a great one on what it must be like to be IR-11. He'd stop dead in his tracks, look over his shoulder with a terrified face and hands splayed, gasping with fear, like, <laughs> looking for enemies on every side. That's what you get with IR-11. 11 novels. So anyway, because of this, this is another tense, claustrophobic picture centered on alienation and a descent into, if not madness, then emotional or nervous breakdown among apartment dwellers in the city. Oddly produced by gimmick meister William Castle, it features then big names like Sinatra, Woody Allen girl, Mia Farrow, personally I always preferred her, perpetually stoned Italian horror standby sister Tisa, perpetual frightened sidekick and comic relief Alicia Cook Jr., Martin Landau lookalike, actor-director John Cassavetes, screwball comedy cuckold Ralph Bellamy of The Awful Truth and Carefree, Batman baddie The Puzzler, Maurice Evans, and even the gorilla Topper Returns and Freaky Friday's Patsy Kelly. The biggest differences between this film and Repulsion are budget both on screen and off. 
the lushness of the film is matched by the gorgeous building they move into, which would probably go for a million or more these days, just to rent it every month. Uh, <laughs> who knows? It's crazy. This is the home of the idle rich, the sort of place the wrestlers can only dream of, but it's filled with evil and a sinister cult who wants to make the hapless heroine the bride of Satan. It's the sort of realistically paranoid film that shows literally Everyone in the cast, I mean everyone, from friendly neighbors to her own loving husband, to be in cahoots and hiding a sinister secret, doing their best to convince the believably emotionally fragile Pharaoh, just like her life thereafter and try to deny that, that everything is fine even as murders and bizarre circumstances occur all around. I always think of the kindly old couple offering her the Tannis route. It's an effectively creepy film, only matched by one of my favorites, Michael Winner's The Sentinel, nearly a decade later. I always liked this one, though it should be noted that alongside The Exorcist, it seems to have terrified folks back in the church going in the subsequent decade, and look where that took us in the 80s, much less of late, so I do have a bone to pick with Roman over that one. Anyway, it's a good film, very good film. And, and uh, one of the senior couple that uh, offers assistance to uh, Mia's character is uh, one of those people is Ruth Gordon, who won yes. Best Supporting Act. Uh, hold on, hold on. Uh, Did you know Tony Curtis is in this thing? Where? <laughs> yeah, he's, he's probably in that scene toward the end when everybody's sitting around waiting for the birth. Yeah. You know, when the couple's in there. Yeah. That's exactly where I figured you meant, the big cult scene. Yeah, yeah, the big cult scene. Interesting. I didn't know that. Wow. Yeah. And we did a Tony Curtis show. We did a Tony Curtis show, folks. So, okay. What I have to say is very eerie weird film yeah it's got a bit of that stuff that that, that bit of that feeling that uh, repulsion has um, but it's so much better yeah so much better so much different it's, it's opened up it's not as bleak and cassavetti is funny i really like cassavetti's in some films and in some films i don't care yeah. for he's not a bad actor he's no he's, he's a very good actor and sometimes he does shit work and <laughs> because he he's just not no I, I no let me rephrase that folks sometimes he's in shit movies but he's very good in them like incubus mm-hmm. the john howe film british film director who worked on some ventures episodes i believe as well that was the one with the samson video on it yeah bruce yeah. dickinson's all bad <laughs> yeah and and that's a very strange film yeah, <laughs> and that's also a film about the occult. Mm-hmm. And uh, so John Cassavetes, film director, mm-hmm. writer, really. He's a rare one like John Huston that is equally known for his acting roles as his director. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting to see him in this picture. He had just done something. Was it Machine Gun Mc- McCain? Oh, McBain or whatever it was, yeah. Yeah, uh, the, I think it was Italian. Uh, it was, and it had Robert Mitchum's son. Right. Yeah, and 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 it was Chris Mitchell. Just a strange Italian crime picture, I, folks. I can I hope it's Italian. I just remember the nude scene with his girlfriend when he walks in. I was like, oh, she looks nice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he was, gosh, and he was on um, I think a couple of Mission Impossibles, the older one, mm-hmm. um, the TV show. Yeah, uh, in uh, in a few episodes. <laughs> And you know that thing's been around for like 200 years. We did a show on that. <laughs> we did a show on that. So I, I just really like this movie. And it's it's uh, interesting where it, you're not quite sure actually what's going on. I like that. It's also like a movie I'm like, I run hot and cold on The Sentinel. Oh, I love The Sentinel, but okay. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, you're not quite sure where this is going. And then when you start realizing where it's going, you're like, oh, really? We're going to go there? And mm-hmm. at the very end, it's like, yeah. oh. And what happens at the end is very interesting. 
I don't want to give it away for no. anyone who has not seen it. If there is anybody in the world that hasn't seen it, but yeah, it's good. It's good. Well, you know, sometimes you have to... <sighs> it's everybody's first time. Somebody's always going to have a first time with it. Right. But between this and Macbeth, which is 1971, is when the Tate murders happened, mm-hmm. the Manson murders. So it's said that those murders informed the craziness that goes on in Polanski's Macbeth. Yes, that's what I was going to get to. Boy, oh boy. <laughs> so, probably the most noteworthy tidbit about this film is that none other than Hugh Hefner and Playboy magazine funded its production after meeting Polanski at a party. So, John Finch of Hitchcock's Frenzy and Hammer's Vampire Lovers and Horror of Frankenstein and the always gorgeous Francesca Annitz, Tuppence from the Partners in Crime series and the Klaus Kinsey Ian McShane, The Pleasure Girls, last discussed in our Kinsky show, as well as 80s cheese fest Kroll and Dune star in Polanski's simultaneously expensive-looking and dingy historical epic adaptation of the Shakespeare fan favorite. Martin Shaw of The Professionals, Nicholas Selby, who did a stint on Doctor Who around the Colin Baker and Sylvester McCoy eras, also appear. For the time, it was considered quite dark and realist, sort of in keeping with the Italian neorealist and British kitchen sink and angry young man films. But while it's certainly comparable with those and far less syrupy than Zeffirelli's contemporaneous Romeo and Juliet, having seen this performed so many times with a trio of local troops who do Shakespeare in the Park every summer, and at least pre-COVID at local libraries as well, not to mention the Verdi opera with Anna Dimitrenko, it's become a bit tired and over-familiar, robbing Polanski's take of any real impact, at least at so many years removed. I'd consider this one wholly an essential, save as the first entry in a series of even darker films that he'd already delivered, in the aftermath of his wife's murder and the collapse of the hippie dream of changing the nation for the better after Altamont and the many shootings of still much beloved public figures like the Kennedys and Dr. King, not to forget the more controversial Malcolm that a lot of people were people looked up to were taken down in that very same small time period. So mm. the darkness of the era and the darkness of his personal life kind of bleed through to this film. But, you know, it's already a dark play. It was already supposedly the cursed play. You know, I know that opera people, uh, they have to do little perambulations and, you know, throw salt over shoulders, some crap, because, you know, you can't even mention the name of it. Oh, that's the, the, course, the Scottish play, they call it. They won't even refer to it by name. Because supposedly it's always bad luck to perform it. Who knows? But, uh, I didn't find he added much to it. Maybe at the time they considered it very bleak and more realist, but seeing it now, you won't get much of it, honestly. Unless you're a huge Shakespeare fan. There are a lot of people that do get into Shakespeare late in life. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course, there were, there were those theater, you know, theater-going people, the literary crowd. You know, yeah. They, they... I've seen Macbeth so many times perform live, even. Oh. It's just like, all right, well, yes, I love the play, but all right, enough already. You know? yeah, Show another well, one. <laughs> well, some people get into it later. I, you know, I, yeah. it's almost like, I'll just sit down and read Shakespeare. You know, and yeah. Well, I've done that. I actually read his complete works once when I was younger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and that's, that's like... Geez. It's a slog, yeah. <laughs> it's a slog. Um, It'll help you appreciate the English language, I'll say that. <laughs> but this is one of the, one of the, you know, this is probably the earliest, or one of the earliest, really, I'd rather rephrase it. This is one of the earliest of the, uh, you know, because Olivier had done Shakespeare films, mm-hmm. you know, not filmed stage productions, but although I think he did one, uh, Lawrence Olivier had done a few of these, dressed up and it's not modernized, you know, it's just that it's, it's got all this gore and I don't know, it's war, madness, war of madness, the madness of war. 140 minutes, it's tough. Yeah, it's like, so by now, for those who are familiar with Shakespeare, are familiar with films of Shakespeare works, this is one of the 
darkest, but it's also one of Shakespeare's darkest stories. So yeah. John Finch is really interesting. And the funny thing was, as good as he is and as handsome as he is, he was a very good looking fellow. He just never made it. And you would have thought he would have into a real stardom. He had been in a few films that I like, like Frenzy, the Hitchcock. Mm-hmm. The final program is a movie I really love, uh, the Jerry Cornelius thing. Mm-hmm. But he just he just never popped over into uh, – he died in, uh, I think, 2005. Mm-hmm. He's also a race, a race car driver. Really? Yeah, uh, he was a race car driver. I think, I think his uh, death was uh, – he was only 70, but he had diabetes very bad. Ugh. So about that. All right, so... So next... A very strange movie. <laughs> for no apparent reason, Polanski decides to vault Foch and deliver a weird, absurdist sex comedy without the sex. One of those Candide meets Sod affairs, it follows a wandering waif who happens to be a reasonably attractive young blonde, of course. Sorry about that. I'm a cat. As she encounters a number of bizarre and lascivious characters, this time in a seaside villa. Carlo Ponti, famously the rich mogul producer who landed the great and earthy Italian sex symbol Sophia Loren, funded this one and grabbed hot property Marcello Mastriani and fellow Fellini regular Alvaro Vitali of the Pierino films in Amarcord to join Sex with a Smile and the Puma Man Sydney Rome as some of her would-be suitors and oddball encounters along the way. Like candy, but even more pointless and even less... Uh, erotic doesn't apply to the genre of film so perhaps quote of any prurient interest whatsoever this one was a dud by all measures and I don't believe it has any fan base even with the recent blue that came out which I unfortunately got and sold off quickly (laughs) (laughs) yeah it's actually uh, I think this was on video VHS or maybe early DVD is also Diary of Forbidden Dreams until yeah the recent well the recent blue that was in the last, what, 10 years or something like that? Yes, probably like uh, that, yeah. And it's, the title is What? J. K. It's very hard to find because of that. <laughs> uh, yeah, because people forget the hell it's what the hell it's called. Yeah. It's, you know, this is... okay. Well, try searching what with a question mark online, even if you put Blu-ray next to it. Good luck. <laughs> right, so it was 1972 film, and I think 69, 70, 71, those Italian sex comedies started, started getting cranked out alongside... The uh, Euro crime films, and mm-hmm. it was a very popular genre mm-hmm. uh, with uh, quite a few ladies, Italian actresses who uh, got a following for their antics. These things featured quite a bit of nudity. Uh, some were very spicy, sometimes spicy sex scenes, erotic sex scenes, mixed in with the comedy. And so, I don't know, maybe Carlo Ponti thought, Oh, maybe Polanski can do something like that. Except it's it's weird. It's not like that genre that you think it's maybe in a way intentionally trying to uh, copy. And it it just and the comedy is just weak. And it's mm-hmm. it's just I'm just not quite sure. Yeah, it's actually similar in a way to um, Franco's uh, uh, Justine, I think it was with Tchaikovsky. Yes. But that was actually better. That was more watchable than this. That's a really good movie. <laughs> Uh, Justine, yeah. Polanski returned to Hollywood in 1973 to direct Chinatown for Paramount. Polanski tries his hand at the 70s neo-noir. More blatant than usual homage to vintage 40s cinema, apparent right from the opening credits roll, though it doesn't work on the same level as the Robert Mitchum, Sidney Pollack, the Yakuza, or the star's subsequent Farewell, My Lovely, which we discussed in our Mitchum, and in the case of the latter, Charlotte Rampling shows. 
or Elliot Gould slash Robert Altman's Long Goodbye, which we covered in our Gould and Philip Marlowe shows. Jack Nicholson, who's done too many films of note to mention, though for me he'll always be the lawyer and easy rider, whose speech on freedom and how it threatens the uptight and the wage slave has been one of the most referenced and personally apropos bits of film dialogue in my life, save the consistently applicable demolition man. The slicks back his hair, dons a fedora, and tries to go all Henry Fonda trying to be Bogart, that voice of his, in his convoluted mystery revolving around a large-scale scam where big business is artificially inducing drought to force out residents and therefore buy cheap access to a much-needed water supply for their own region and California desert conditions. This weird, politicized overtone of corruption, backstabbing, and murder eschews the usual noir focus of insurance swindles, inheritance grabs, sinister femme fatales, and brushes with the criminal underworld for a vague commentary on Watergate and a similarly shady malfeasance among corporate and government officialdom at the expense of their constituents, something that has become dramatically upgraded under today's Republican schemes and machinations nationally. It's likely that this spurred critics of the era, even to this very day, to overpraise what is otherwise a fairly dull-lit, sleepily-paced, and ultimately drably depressing film that fails to reach the same heights as the aforementioned classics of neo-noir, or even many films questionably attributed to be such, like De Palma's Blowout or Body Double, which are infinitely more watchable, dark, and entertaining. In short, while few would deign to denigrate the film, it's something too mainstream and quite overrated. Cast-wise, you also have Blad Diner look-alike Faye Dunaway of the original Thomas Crown Affair, which we had talked in our Steve McQueen show, The Towering Inferno, the Oliver Reed, Ian McShane, Three and Four Musketeers films, which we talked some of in our Oliver Reed show, Network, and Supergirl. We also have the father of the amusingly crazy Christian Glover, <laughs> Diamonds Are Forever's gay assassin Bruce Glover, director John Huston, and Magnum P.I.'s Higgins, Jonathan Hillerman, all popping up at one point or another. Plus, Polanski himself is the knife-wielding thug who scars Nicholson Schnoz in the most famous scene. I, I, uh, this film has been called a classic. It's been called one of the best films of its type. So I, I will acknowledge that there are a lot of fans and a, a lot of uh, average film goers or film viewers and a lot of critics. Yeah, very mainstream. A lot of critics who really like this 10 best list, 100, you know, 100 best films of all time. It's in that list. Jack Nicholson is, is fine in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's I think it's, it was an interesting role for him because it's not what you normally would see. But that being said, it's it's a loopy picture because it's a little bit long. Mm-hmm. It's over two hours. It's over two hours, but it feels longer. <laughs> one of the problems with this movie is that you never know what's going on or what it's about until you get way half past the halfway point. Yeah. And, and, and you're like, is that all? But then you realize, well, yeah, but it's a bigger story. Yeah. You know, the weird thing is probably one of the first major films to uh, treat incest you know, mm-hmm. a, a bit matter-of-factly. You know what I'm talking about? Yes, I do. Yeah, and, and I don't want to give that away for fans of incest. <laughs> uh, um, wow. There, there's, there's a weird... That's I, digging low. <laughs> No, I just... <laughs> fans of well, incest. There, there probably are. Oh, but, uh, We're going to cater to them. <laughs> but anyway, uh, yeah, there, there's something between two characters, and it's like, okay with them, I guess. I don't know. It's weird. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, Diane Ladd is in this. Did you mention that? Yes, Diane Ladd. And Burt Young. And uh, yeah, so it's, 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 I don't know. I, I, not a huge fan of this film, but I will acknowledge that it 
if you didn't have this film, there probably wouldn't have been Farewell, My Lovely, two years later. Very possible. Know? Very possible. Because it definitely was a big thing that kicked off or continued and made more visible, I should say, the neo noir yeah. genre in the 70s. Next, another strange movie. <laughs> yeah. And I also say that it's supposed to be, or it seems like it's going to be a 40s film homage, but it never really feels like that. And it, the subjects it's tackling are very contemporary for the time, and it's just kind of a mess, like I said. So, next up... Polanski returns to Paris for The Tenant. Polanski himself stars in the third of his explorations of urban paranoia and emotional, if not mental, breakdown. The infamous Shelley Winters of The Poseidon Adventure, Cleopatra Jones, Tentacles, and Ma Parker on Batman, uh, TV bit player and Satan School for Girls, Joe Van Fleet, The Vampire Bat, Mr. Blandings Builds His Dreamhouse, Ghost Story, and The Changelings, Melvin Douglas, and the Kinski Herzog's Nosferatu's Isabella Johnny round out the cast. Polanski moves into a depressing flat in a building populated by crusty old folks, a room previously tenanted by a female Egyptologist who tried committing suicide by defenestration. Out of morbid curiosity, presumably, he visits the woman in the hospital and meets a Johnny who's a friend of hers. When the woman starts screaming like a lunatic, the two head out to a great first date. Hey, I just met you. Your suicidal friend who I just butted my way into visiting for no apparent reason is disturbingly insane. Let's go watch a Bruce Lee film. <laughs> That's true, yeah. Enter the dragon, right? <laughs> Better than that, she jerks him off during the fight scenes while a guy in the row behind watches. Then she doesn't want to go home with him. Okay. Well, that hasn't happened to you? <laughs> wow. Uh, <laughs> that would be interesting if it had, but no. <laughs> Has it happened to you? I'm not going to say. There you go. His neighbors began to turn on him, and he starts discovering weird things, like how they all seem to act weird and stare at him from the crapper across the way from his window, how nobody knows why the prior tenant tried to kill herself, and the local hash slinger keeps giving the old tenant's usual, a burglary of his place the others warn him not to report, there's even a tooth hidden into his wall. Gradually, he begins to flip out after waking up covered in makeup. So instead of trying to figure out how this happened, he begins to lose his ego, cross-dressing in her scanties, convinced the neighbors are trying to change him into the now-deceased former tenant. Eventually, he repeats her suicide attempt in full drag at the time. Yeah. Yeesh. Well, this one is a lot more loaded than repulsion, that's for damn sure. Elements of both cul-de-sac and Rosemary's Baby are tapped, but here he makes much of being put upon, if not despised, and threatened simply because he's an obvious foreigner. <laughs> Shades of his own life. And yet, there's precious little here to hang on some pat political interpretation on, as some have, because it is once again about ego dissolution, loss of self, and madness, more than it ever is about anything further. Word his tenants not merely disguised and annoyed his presence, but actually malevolently conspiring against him, much less trying to recreate and repeat the existence and demise of the last tenant, and possibly many prior and subsequently. That would certainly make it a horror film or so, but the more obvious take is that 90% of this is all in his head, and his isolation and disconnection with all around him, from weird friends and co-workers to the crusty if not belligerent tenants, is driving a fragile ego into insanity. Not the most pleasant of watches, to be sure, but nonetheless, the film inspired one of the great, if oft-overlooked, gothic rock bands, Play Dead, to write the song of the same title, The Tenant, and as a creepy psychological horror film of its era, it certainly works. Oh, yeah, it's it's a really... He's really good in this, too. He's really good in this film. Well, I said I liked him a lot in uh, Fearless Vampire Killers, Dance of the Vampires, but he's, he's pretty damn terrific in this. Yeah, he's much better here. Yeah, yeah, but it's, you know, mid-70s. Different kind of film. Yeah. Different kind of film. But 
why did I see this? The thing was, they, they had an art house when they released this because it was just so dour. Yeah. And it was so strange and weird. You couldn't put this out and, like, you know, playing next to uh, Smokey and the Bandit, you know, <laughs> on a double bill. You that was schizophrenic. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, no, you you would have to put this out, you know, in our house. And I think I saw it in the East Village used to have, uh, I forgot the name of those theaters on 13th Street. Not the Cinema Village, but something else. It'll probably come to me one day. I'll probably wake up like, hey, yeah, that's it. I know you it's know. not the Angelica. <laughs> no, 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 it's out, that's elsewhere. Yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, I think I saw it there uh, for the first time. And the uh, same place where I saw The Man Who Fell to Earth, by the way. Mm-hmm. And so I liked it immediately and was very weirded out by it, though, at the same time. It's a very strange film. But, you know, you, you pretty much laid it all out, what it's, you know, what happens and what's it about. And um, one of the really interesting things is the marketing of it was really cool. They, based on what the film is about, they, they created this image for the film poster, and I really like that. So uh, it's probably one of the best one of the best of its type of psychological horror films. Much better than I, I think it more, succeeds more than sort of similar repulsion. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's funny when you mentioned uh, Man Who Fell to Earth. I was trying to think the whole time, like, where the hell did we recover that? Because I know we did, and it was actually in our show uh, for those who fell during that one year, where we did a lot of Bowie. We did Bowie films and music. We covered all that stuff. Right, right. We did a big Bowie, yeah. And uh, I think to celebrate, not to celebrate, to uh, uh, celebrate, just you know, give him tribute. Tri- uh, give him tribute. Thank you, thank you. Yeah. That's he had recently died. He had recently died, and uh, there was a bunch of other people we talked about the same day because there were so many people that kicked off that year. Right. Uh, yeah. But anyway, for those interested in hearing about that and Merry Christmas to Lawrence and Labyrinth and all those things, uh, definitely check that show out. So here we come to a major shift in the man's life and filmography. The next two films I have absolutely zero interest in. So I'll give a bit of background on each in succession and leave it to you if you want to discuss it in further detail. In 1978, after learning that a judge planned to reject the previously agreed upon flea bargain for probation to give that 50 years of your prison sentence, instead he had fled to Paris and became a fugitive and could no longer work in countries that he might face arrest or extradition. This is why many of his films going forward are going to be set in France. First up is one of those drab merchant ivory-esque costume dramas, namely Tess, which is actually Tess of the Durbervilles, with Natasha Kinski, Klaus's daughter, who would be far more watchful on films like To the Devil a Daughter and the 1982 Cat People from the Yakuza and Hardcore's Paul Schrader. I love hardcore. <laughs> I love the Yakuza for that matter. Anyway, he does that. Also in 1981, he directed and co-starred as Mozart in a stage production of Amadeus, which was a big film at that time. And then he delivered, of all things, a flop comedy along the lines of the still not exactly likable Monty Python film Yellowbeard, which is named like Pirates with, of all people, Charlie Varick, The Laughing Policeman, and The Taking of Pelham 123's Walter Matthau. It was a financial and critical failure, recovering only a small fraction of his production budget. And after those two stinkers, I guess he got that nonsense out of his system, and the next few films were a decided improvement. So if you want to cover those, go right ahead. Otherwise, we'll just move on. Well, well Tess, Tess uh, was based on or influenced by uh, Thomas Hardy's 1891 novel, Tessa of the Bills. Yes. Screenplay was written by Polanski, John Brown, John, and Polanski's frequent collaborator on screenplays, Gerard Brock. Mm-hmm. 
nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, Best Cinematographer, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design. You know, the guy had fled the country a year or so before this, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, that was interesting. Um, it's really long. It's 170 minutes. But then all those Merchant Ivory things were so very long. Peter Firth before and Leigh Lawson. I was going to say Peter Firth and Leigh Lawson both before they uh, – they're not any so well, <laughs> uh, are in this as the, uh, you know, the male guys that are very much uh, circling Natasha Kinski's role as the object of, of their affection. I, I'm not a big fan of this type of movie, personally, yeah, but, but I, I had seen it. And you mentioned Pirates. Yes. Walter Matthau film, uh... I think one thing you can say about that is it kicked off that whole stupid, if you like them, the Johnny Depp, uh, Jack Sparrow films, parts of the Caribbean films. No, this is way early. This is 86, and those yeah. didn't start till like 2000. So, uh, no, but there was a huge thing with, uh, gosh, Math Matthew Modine and somebody else. It was called, uh, oh, gosh, oh, I forgot the, what was it, Leah? There were a few that did were influenced by this. There was a short run of things before before Johnny Depp's pirate films. So anyway, uh, Pirates is it's just weird. It's an unlikable film. Yeah. And it's not really a comedy. It's 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 like one of Matthau's more straight roles. Charlotte Lewis is in this, and she's just gorgeous. Um, Roy Kinnear is in it. Ferdie Main, who we mentioned before. Mm -hmm. Ian Drury. Ian Dury. For the Blockheads? <laughs> for the Blockheads, his, his, his character's called Meat Hook. Some bastards no, ain't that clever, what? <laughs> uh, this was a very costly film, and it was a huge bomb worldwide. It cost $40 million because it was filmed in France, Tunisia, and Poland, and on the sea. And you make any film on a ship. Yeah. And it's supposed to be a pirate ship. So, you know, it's they had to do a lot of dressing, make it seaworthy. It's just weird casting all around. And uh, it made it was just a huge bomb. It was a huge bomb worldwide. It pulled in six million on a forty million dollar budget. Can you imagine that? Wow. Um, Almost as bad as this, Char. <laughs> oh, I saw that. Or Inchon, <laughs> the, the film that the Moonies made. <laughs> so much better is Frantic. Oh yes. Polanski finally regains his footing with this rather decent little thriller, occasionally classified as 80s neo-noir for its twists and turns, but it's really more of a Hitchcockian thriller, with close affinity to the sort of action spy thriller that the Mission Impossible films do so well. Harrison Ford, much beloved star of the Star Wars and Indiana Jones films, is a doctor who enters Paris with his wife for a conference. When she mistakenly grabs the wrong suitcase at the airport, she winds up disappearing, while Ford desperately tries to track her down with no support whatsoever from officialdom. Eventually encountering future Polanski wife, the always quite sexy Emmanuel Seigneur, he finds his wife has run afoul of what at first seems to be a drug mule scenario, but turns out to be an Arabic terrorist nuclear weapon smuggling situation instead. Like North by Northwest, it's fairly tout for its era, and really kicks into gear when the sexy Seigneur, like Ava Marie Saint in the former case, finally shows his co-conspirator in Ford's nightmarish search for his wife and her release. The soundtrack is also quite good, with late-period Ennio Morricone score and a lot of Grace Jones, though unfortunately it's a single track, I've seen that face before, off nightclubbing over and over. Even so, nothing says France in the early 80s like a bit of Grace Jones. I really did enjoy this one. No, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. You know, Harrison Ford kind of gave birth to roles like this. And, you know, years later we have Liam Neeson 
doing, you know, different takes on the same kind of role, uh, as an example. But no, it's quite quite a, a nice little uh, film. It's a, I guess, neo-noir or whatever. But it's also a good little thriller. There's a, a great chase across rooftops. Mm-hmm. And yeah, no, I gotta, gotta say that, y'all, for the... For a mainstream film, it's really rather good. It's rather good. And for, and for even though he did blockbuster movies that roles like this and in the mosquito coast mm-hmm. and others harrison even something like witness and yeah witness you know harrison ford really showed that you know he had he has some really good chops yeah he's not just han solo he's actually got a career yeah. <laughs> uh so bitter moon 1992 obscene have you ever truly felt real overwhelming passion have you ever truly idolized a woman nothing can be obscene in such a love everything that occurs between you becomes a sacrament that sounds like a straight out of Anne Rice, like Belinda, or uh, maybe one of the Vampire Chronicles, the original trilogy. Mm. A pervy cripple pimps his young French wife after strangers in a voyeuristic Jess Franco, Lena Romay sort of relationship. First, she gets married men like Nebuchadnezzar Hugh Grant interested. Then he shares tales of their past intimate relations. There's a highly erotically charged S&M scene that comes off like a straight version of Freakin's Cruising, which we talked on our Al Pacino show. Mm. But after a while, even the wildest kinks start to bore them. Lovers should quit while their passion's at its peak, not wait for its inevitable decline. So a solution? <laughs> Kick his loving girlfriend out when she keeps coming back. Let's say he goes even darker and not in a good way. Then he starts having random Tinder-style hookups, which leads to him drunkenly getting hit by a bus. She shows up at the hospital and turns minor injuries into the permanent kind, leaving him crippled. Now entirely at her mercy and filled with regret and self-loathing, she flips the relationship to get him back for all his coldness and manipulations. And somehow they decide now they should get married. The film returns to the present day, and this guy's finagled Grant's wife into getting interested in his French wife. And they have a kinky dance for the punters and wind up in bed together. This sets the nut job off again, and even though he's been the one pushing his wife into all these affairs, he's jealous enough to gun her down. Grant, it's implied, gets back together with his wife and returns to a cold marriage. Uh, well, the first part of the film is very French decadent and erotic. Shades of Saad, Emmanuel Arsan, Pauline Réage, and Catherine Robegrillet, who gave us Metzger's The Image, are all over this film. But zero of those books or the films that were made from them got this ugly or went so horribly wrong in the end. Perhaps Saad, but even then. These books celebrated sex, eroticism, and liberation between open-minded couples. Polanski skews it to his usual sensibilities and turns life-affirming eroticism into depressive Calvinism and inevitable doom and failure that leads to due punishment. Ugh. It's practically puritanical in the larger picture. We experimented sexually in exploring a sadomasochistic relationship, therefore we must be horribly punished! And it's this that leaves Bitter Moon, like most Polanski films, unfortunately, with a bitter taste in the viewer's mouth. Seigneur is one of the more stunning modern French actresses, particularly when she's dolled in fetish gear, but don't let that fool you. This is a very depressing watch, unless you stop the film at the pig scene, which is much sillier than it sounds. Otherwise, if you sit for the whole thing, wow, you're going to feel bad afterwards. Yeah, it's 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 a depressing film. It's, uh, it, at the time period, 92, erotic thrillers for the thing and then there was oh yeah zombie king and the rich who kicked off everything yeah and skinamax and all that yep. stuff the majority of those pictures were erotic thrillers all those shannon tweed movies all those andrew stevens movies yeah yeah so this, this was a genre it was a thing yeah mm-hmm. and and but this is not a play on that what it is it's just this weird weird again get in collaboration with the Gerard Brock and John Brown, John, this is a very... Cold sac uh, much more bitter. Yeah, this is a very strange film. It's 
I found it neither erotic nor most thrilling. Um, <laughs> yeah, very strange performances. It's it's um, Peter Coyote for for a bit. I was always wondering what what he was going to turn up in, what kind of role, and in what film. Mm-hmm. But the, this really was for him a bit of a departure, and uh, just a strange film. I didn't really like it much. I liked the first half, and then it, like I said, right after the pig scene or so, it went right down the toilet. Death and the Maiden, 94, another small character piece. This one centers on alien Sigourney Weaver as a victim of a fascist regime. In true Nazi exploitation style, she was off-screen, revealed only to dialogue, abused, tortured, and raped by those in power, specifically a Mengele-style doctor. And now she has a chance to turn the tables in the spirit of I Spit on Your Grave or Act of Vengeance, a.k.a. Rape Squad. You've seen this crap all before in films like Salo and Ilsa, not to mention all those Italian and French grindhouse films of 1977 or thereabouts. This sort of film had a short, prolific heyday. But robbed of any sick prurian elements by removing the naked ladies and having it delivered by the rather butch and vindictive weaver, the horrors of living under and running afoul of what we almost wound up with in this very country on January 6th of 2021 gets hammered home with force. It's ridiculous because no amount of revenge can satisfy me. The question of whether or not her victim slash presumed victimizer is actually guilty, she was apparently blindfolded throughout his ongoing torture and only recognized his voice and laugh, is a running doubt throughout most of the picture, and two of our three players really carry this with their acting, Gandhi himself being the doctor in question, who happens to drop by their place seemingly by a random encounter and happenstance involving a flat tire, of course Gandhi being Ben Kingsley. Polanski's script is taut and loaded with vivid, salty imagery. Like Bitter Moon, it plays with sexuality, albeit solely through dialogue, and subverts it into pure sadism, not in the sense of consensual bedroom games, but in the sense of true oppressive autocracy, both as extended metaphor and a precise personal victimization of all those it lowers itself over in the form of Weaver. It isn't hard to humiliate or be humiliated, is it? Not that difficult to lord power over people. It's no great achievement. It's another extremely dark picture, with only exit to Eden baddie Stuart Wilson letting the British end down, as it were, with his mediocre and quite submissive, if by design, role in the proceedings, and the three-way relationship per se. But the other two elevate the material beyond his exploitation ghetto trappings into something of a philosophical metaphor, as noted previously, and this is really the film's soul-saving grace. That said, those who may have found the man's 60s and 70s were grim should by all means avoid any of the films that Polanski made in the 90s, if not straight through to the present day. They're often quite hard to stomach and far from a pleasurable view. Well, this is actually, he didn't originate the screenplay for this. It was actually on, uh, I think it was on Broadway. It was Death and the Maiden. Ariel Dorfman, who did the screenplay with Raphael Iglesias. I, I, that name is very familiar to me. Anyway, um, it's interesting, you know, when you when you open up a stage work for the cinema, for you know, make a film version of it. The idea is to open it up and not make it more claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. You know, you're you're not in the theater watching two or three people on stage. You're in a larger theater with a lot of people watching two or three people on screen. You know, it's just it's weird. You know, it, James Kahn, who recently passed away, and and uh, was in that terrific Misery Stephen King uh, adaptation. Um, I forgot who directed that, but so sometimes it does work. But here, it's weird. You know, you you kind of checked all those uh, those ticks off with the Nazi exploitation things, and you know, I thought that maybe Sigourney Weaver was a little too be too old for this role. But then again, there's no sense of time in this thing. When did this happen? When she was much younger? How much younger? You know, 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's my reference to that because I got the feeling that there wasn't, it was very recent where the, the, these terrible things happened to her character. Yeah. So I'm like, but would they do that to her? I don't know. I do. It's a strange film. I did not like it. Yeah. No, having seen it. Next film is very popular. Oh, yeah. And I will say it's taut and gripping. It's definitely watchable if you can stomach it. So the next one I love, uh, The Ninth Gate. Avoiding the whole nonsense recently from the man's divorce case, Johnny Depp pulls off the same sort of role Tom Cruise has said in Eyes Wide Shut, which we discussed in our Stanley Kubrick show, if not Heath Ledger in The Order, both of which similarly center on Jalowesque involvements of an unsuspecting protagonist into a sinister, if not conspiratorial, netherworld operating just beneath the facade of respectable society. Oddly classified by some as another neo-noir, this quite excellent film echoes the earlier Rosemary's Baby, but improves on it with an almost Argento-esque quality while tagging in greater metaphysical aspects and occultism, something Argento only really tackled with Suspiria and Inferno to whatever extent. Depp is a somewhat shady procurer of rare and antiquarian books who will more or less sell his soul, not to mention break laws and rip off similarly-minded rivals, to score wealthy clients' items on their wish list. Unfortunately for him, he's engaged by my favorite Dracula side of Lugosi, Frank Langella, to score the other two existing copies of a book he owns, The Titular Ninth Gate, as the 17th century author and occultist apparently put slight alterations into each of the three books' engravings, and deciphering the clues with all of them together will open the gates of hell. Naturally, this is only revealed as Death's quest goes on, and numerous contexts and rivals seem to mysteriously die off with no trace left behind. 30-something and alien star Lena Olin has a brief but important role as a very sexy contact come conquest gone attempt to kill her. Euro cult favorite Jack Taylor of many a Franco, DeSorio, and Nashi film, all of whom we've done shows on in the early days of the show, as well as the Mexican Nostradamus serial come film series Juan Piquer Simone's Pieces and Jose Lara's Edge of the Axe, also stars as one of the contacts. And of course, the sexy Emmanuel Seigneur appears in a very important role as a co-conspirator who turns out to be the biblical horror of Babylon, for those who know their revelations, or the Crowley and Jack Parsons, for that matter. You can also make a parallel of sorts to Angel Heart, but this is a much better film by a far more experienced auteur, with a much higher caliber of actors and actresses than that would ever imply. I personally adore this film. I've watched it like the aforementioned Order and Eyes Wide Shut many times. I absolutely love this sort of occult mystery, and this one really fills that particular bill admirably. This is easily my favorite of Polanski's films, and certainly his least heavy-handedly art house in most Euro cult. Yeah, there was a spate of these things in the time period, wasn't there? Like Angel Heart, yep. which I, I actually liked Angel Heart, too. Yeah, no, it's fine. Uh, but yeah, this is a dark film, though. And, and The Believers was another one. Right. Wasn't there one with Pacino? We did a Pacino show. Uh, I can't remember. Anyway, no, this is... Interesting. It's Johnny Depp is really good in this, and it's funny, you know, for years because of uh, stage and film version of Dracula, Frank Langella was like a heartthrob, mm-hmm. and he kind of receded into uh, working more on the stage and only occasionally on film. Yeah. So he didn't do it all too often, uh, appear in movies, and so he shows up <laughs> in this thing, which is really weird. Yeah, you know, it's just, very strange film. It's uh, they definitely did a lot of research mm-hmm. on the uh, on the occult, and and this shows very bleak film. It, it's funny because after a while though, Polanski's films, which is get, I I found this a really big improvement over some of the, the films that led up to this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it's, it's just 
you know, audiences did not flock to his movies. His next one would be a very big hit, but again, dealing with weird subject matter. Yeah, so now he drifts off course for a few films, delivering one of those snoozeworthy Oscar bait affairs, followed by a Dickens adaptation. First up, the Schindler's List asks the pianist, based on an autobiography of a fellow Polish Jew and noted musician who managed to survive the Holocaust. Unsurprisingly, it did win an Oscar for Best Director as well as the French Palme d'Or at Cannes. Of course, Polanski couldn't return to the States for the Oscar ceremony, so his frantic star Harrison Ford did the honors in his place. There's a few things in film I really can't abide. One of them is boring Merchant Ivory-esque costume dramas, and the other is Oscar winners. Our building actually has a poster down in the washroom, as in washer-dryers, not the shitter. That's all Oscar winners up to a fairly recent year. And I swear there's less than four on that that can even sit through much of this light. They happen one night, Namadeus, are the only ones that really stood out in that respect. I hate that shit. Give me a cheap-ass Bruno Mattei flick mm. or some goofy, no-budget Polonia Brothers SOV any day. Make me laugh. Surprise me. Show me some nightmare scenarios, especially the Spanish horror oneric kind. Mainstream crap like that? I'd rather be goofy and entertaining on the level of a Marvel movie, a zombie film, or hell, a wrestling match. Don't bother me with this stuff. So this one's kind of down to you. And next up, he does Oliver Twist in 2005, obviously a Dickens remake. Supposedly, he wanted to do a film that he could show to his kids. He also felt the story reminded him of his own youth trying to survive as a orphan in Poland. You know, Dickens, not my thing. Supposedly, based on a true story by the pianist, mm -hmm. I think Adrian Brody also won Best Actor, I believe. Yeah, he's very, you know, the three-hour, I don't know. I've, after a while, I just got tired of Pretentious mainstream. No, no, what I'm tr trying to say is, these things are brutal to watch. These Holocaust films, you know, yeah. uh, one of the one of the best, one of the best. There were several made-for-television things. I think one of them with uh, Anthony Hopkins. Was that called QB7 or something like that? QB8, based on Leo Leon Harris novel, something like that. Anyway, so there, these things were done, and then the, we went through the whole Italian, French, or German <sighs> brutal. Nazi exploitation thing. Yeah. Nazi exploitation thing. The whole subgenre there, which was rough. Yeah. You know, even for, uh, just Franco dabbled in that, and he, even even his darkest of those films were watchable because it was just. Oh, because they're Euroculty. They're Euroculty, yeah. But it's a terrible thing to happen in history. You know? Yeah. And of course, there are people that say it didn't happen. You know? Oh, God. What, what are they calling them? Holocaust deniers. Yeah, Holocaust deniers. Right wing shits, you know, delusional. Anyway, so you get just burned out. Even there was even moments in the Good Spielberg movie, the Saving Private Ryan. Yeah, mm -hmm. where that stuff is dealt with. It's just rough. It's rough. It's just it, there is God, there is a weird connection to Argento in this stuff. Thomas Crushman plays Captain Wilhelm Hosenfeld. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's Dracula. It's Dracula. <laughs> Argento's Dracula and Adrian Brody and Jalo. Yes. Yeah, so there's, there's your Argento connection in there. Mm -hmm. I didn't love this film. I did see it. I respect what it was trying to do, put it that yeah. way. Uh, you mentioned Oliver Twist, so I guess, you know, it's another version of that. You know, it's uh, Ben Kingsley. Uh, Gandhi plays Fagin. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, gosh, Mark Strong's in it. There's a lot of people that are big Mark Strong fans. He's a fine character actor. He just doesn't, you know. Jamie Foreman, who? Bill Sykes. <laughs> Barney Clark, who? Is Oliver Twist. Leanne Rowe, who? Is Nancy. It's that kind of film. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the Charles Dickens thing. It's a bit, for what it is, it's not as 
brutal as you think it might be because it's coming from Roman Polanski, right? Right. Uh, it's just not very likable, and it never was a likable. I mean, remember the original Oliver with? Um, oh yeah, the musical. Mark Lester. You know, my mother started that on uh, what well, local stages for a couple of years. Yeah. She was uh, Mrs. Bumble. You know, the the two that run the orphanage. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah, so Mark Lester and uh, da, 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 Oliver Reed mm-hmm. as Bill Sykes. And it was just uh, Carol Reed, his, his uncle, directed that. And yeah, he, I think he did one of those uh, original uh, Christmas Carol films, too, as well. But anyway, but that Oliver even was downbeat. And there's a couple of really unfortunate murders. Mm-hmm. So it was a strange Dickens story. I don't know why people praise Dickens so much. He's, he's grotty and depressing. <laughs> yeah. But I guess he was writing about the t- a certain time period. You yeah, know? he was a realist in a lot of ways, and yeah. a satirist to some extent. Satirist and realist. Yeah, so this movie, which I did see, just I, I was surprised it didn't go as deep and as dark as it could have, because it is from who it is. Next up, he does The Ghost Rider. Did you see that? Yes. It's an attempt to redo Frantic on a higher scale, though while certainly watchable, it definitely falls flat in that respect. Snoozeworthy Oscar bait regular Ewan McGregor, whose only film of any interest, so far as I'm concerned, was the Gwyneth Paltrow Emma. Remington Steele come James Bond, Pierce Brosnan, and Mannequin, Porky's, and Police Academy veteran Kim Cattrall, <laughs> starring this overlong political thriller, quote-unquote, about a ghostwriter trying to write the autobiography of former PM Brosnan, accused of a war crime kidnapping terrorists and consigned to undocumented in-flight Gitmo situations. The only thing is, the last guy trying to write the story is dead under what turned out to be rather suspicious circumstances. After trailing down the truth, which involves someone very close to Brosnan being a CIA agent, steering all of his decisions to benefit the U.S., he also winds up run over by a car, his book draft consigned to oblivion. Uh, and this was supposed to be about Tony Blair? And the U.K. being the sole supporter of W's ridiculous blood for oil and revenge for daddy, touted as a supposed war on terror? I don't know. I was busy worrying about all the wild-eyed jingoism and bullshit in this country during those eight hard years, little knowing that much worse would come in 2016. So I I like the film. I it just by the end I just felt it didn't really go anywhere. You yeah. know, it just kind of like ends. You know, it's it's uh it's a weird. It it feels Polanski and there yeah, I just made up something Polanski and it does. It feels like a Polanski film made for uh, a wider audience. Interesting uh, faces do appear in here. Uh, Timothy Hutton, who I hadn't seen for a while, yeah. shows up in here. And Tom Wilkinson, guy worked a lot. John Bernthal, who uh, eventually became the Punish- Punisher mm-hmm. uh, for television. Really, really good. That guy's terrific when he, when he really pushes himself. James Belushi, Eli Wallach. Sounds like an Italian crime thing, huh? Yeah. But um, it's just really interesting. Um I wanted it to be better. I wanted it to actually be about something. And by by the end, it's like, oh, yeah, so we were going in this direction anyway. Yeah. No, it's just that I, I, I enjoy you and McGregor more than you do, apparently. But um, yeah. uh, did you see Carnage? Yes, I did. Okay. And what I wanted to say about that is it actually reminded me of it was trying to be frantic, just more political. Right. But it just didn't go there. It was not exciting. It was it didn't really like you said, it just kind of stalls and trips over its own feet and goes nowhere. So Carnage, entirely unfunny, ostensible comedy with Kate Winslet, Jodie Foster and Wreck-It Ralph himself, John C. Riley. 
It appears to be trying to be a Pinter or a Beckett sort of affair, where a pair of parents wind up chatting and it all devolves into a long, absurdist discussion where everyone starts sniping at each other, almost Bunuel style. I actually wish Polanski was his old self and carried this foolishness out to discreet charm of the bourgeois or exterminating angel extremes. Your choice in the latter, the Bunuel film or the Thomas Aids opera based on such, both are amusing. Instead, it comes off overly restrained and boring about the worst manners get her a few spoken jives rather than the utter collapse of serialized behavior and atavistic devolution into shamelessness and anarchistic nihilism Bunuel and Aids gave us. It thereby fails miserably as any sort of indictment of modern society and its often rather arbitrary and bizarre mores, and worst of all, it really bears no actual laughs, so it is kind of a, a stinker. Yeah, it's a, it's a word. Well, t- any film directed by Rowan Polanski that's about people hanging out in Brooklyn and, and in a Brooklyn apartment building, that, and it's not the tenant. Uh, yeah, sniping about their kids and like, oh god. Yeah, yeah, yep, it's just like, yeah, weird thing, you know, they, they have the conversation, are you, like, they think somebody's a murderer, or these guys talking about, somebody loses their hamster, I'm like, oh? It's, you know, <laughs> Well, didn't it all start off with like a schoolboy fight, like a schoolyard right, fight? Right, right, yeah. yeah I mean, like, the cast is good. Jodie Foster, John C. Riley, Kate Winslet, Christoph Waltz. You know, uh, this is one of the earlier uh, American films for Christoph, uh, who's a terrific actor, but he does shit movies too. This is one of them. <laughs> this is a weird movie. It's also very short. It's 80 minutes. So even with the credits, we were looking at a little over an hour. You know, it's 70 minutes of film. You know, uh, it's just, I don't know. It didn't work for me. No, not at all. Venus and Fur. Venus and Fur. Two-person stage play adaptation with Quantum of Solace, Batty, and Polanski near a look-alike, Matthew Almeric, as a crusty director of a play based on the titular Sakamasak book, which gave us the term masochism, and inspired what I consider the single best song from the Velvet Underground. Polanski wife and filmic regular Manuel Seigneur appears out of the rain post-rehearsals, more or less begging her way into an audition despite his distaste for her and many refusals to let her do so, only to reveal that belying her déclassé persona, she's not only a decent actress, but somehow knows the entirety of the play, not just her sides, even how to work the lighting. He decides she embodies the role of the cruel Wanda, the story's antagonist. But as the story goes on, things begin to shift oddly as Amaric begins to inhabit the role of Severin in their real-world relations. The entire film takes place in the course of a single evening on a single set, with the two the only characters involved, and yet it's strangely quite gripping, particularly if you have any interest in BDSM and Sacker Massac's erotic classic in particular. Do you? It's the... <laughs> <laughs> uh, I think you know. I think you know. It's the first film he'd done entirely in French, one of his few pointedly arthouse films, and the last time he filmed anything outside of English language was way back in Poland with Knife in the Water. So, yeah, I did really like this one, but it is a very small, claustrophobic, two-person, almost film stage play. No, I liked it, too. I liked it, too. I like Matthew Almarek, and um, you're right, he does look like uh, young Polanski. And uh, he also has a, a bit of his tics. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it's interesting. Um, it was obvious why he cast him. <laughs> probably why. You know, what's weird, though, is because isn't she Polanski's wife? Yes. You know, so he's, he, very, very he has someone that looks very much like him, not playing him, but someone who looks very much like him. In a, in a similar film, role, because he's a director. Yeah, <laughs> right, uh, yeah, so there's the voyeurism part right there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a very interesting film. You yeah, seriously, if you're into this kind of thing, you would really enjoy it. But 
keep in mind, it is very much stagey. Yeah. Sadly, I was not able to see the next picture, which in plot seems like a riff on Argento's Tenebrae, namely based on a true story, which supposedly centers on Emmanuel Seigneur trying to write a novel about her mother, who contends not only with writer's block, but weird letters warning her not to complete it. Then she meets Casino Royale's Ava Green, who knows a bit too much about said book and her life. So have you seen that one? I have not, and I'm really interested in it. Uh, yeah. Also, you know, Vincent Perez is in it, and I like him, and of course, Dominique Pignon and Ava Green especially. So uh, no, this is one I, I was not able to catch up with it. I'd like to, though. I also missed Jacques Hughes, mm-hmm. an officer and a spy. Yes. That is actually his last film to date about the Dreyfus Affair, an infamous court case where a Jewish member of the French army was framed as a traitor and jailed for years, only to be retried and exonerated after writers like Emile Zola and Anatole France brought it to the attention of the public. And apparently it was supposed to be lensed in Poland five years earlier, but as Polanski moved to Poland for the duration of the project, the U.S. government was able to attempt extradition now. So Poland eventually denied the request, but by then France introduced tax credits for films. So he says, you know what, it's easier and cheaper to shoot it back home. And that's what went on there. Yeah, well, the Dreyfus Affair, uh, something actually happened mm-hmm. in the late 1800s. A captain of the French army was found guilty of treason for passing secrets to the German Empire, or so it is said. Uh, was he framed or whatever? It, it, apparently, it was an anti-Semite. So there, there's so much to unpack here with this. Yeah. And uh, But Jean, Jean Dujardin, French actor, who mainly does comedies, is well-known for his comedic work. Really good in a serious role. Emmanuel is in this thing again. She, who was that other director? Oh, no, that was Bronson and Jill Ireland. She was in every Charles Bronson film. The actress Jill Ireland. It's like Emmanuel mm-hmm. is in every Polanski film after a certain point. Mm-hmm. Matthew Amaric is back in this. Vincent Perez again. Bruno Raffaelli, I like, I like his work as actor. Apparently, Polanski was really long interested in, in the Dreyfus affair as it became came to be known and wanted to film this for a long time. But it just became this thing that he didn't get around until 2019, which is, you know, it's hard to do historical dramas and bring in an audience. And it's hard to do them in French <laughs> and make them two and a half hours. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, he's, he is getting older. So um, I believe he's, he's working now. Yeah, he's got another Iron of Fire, something called The Palace with Mickey Rourke, and it just started filming back in April in Switzerland. Supposedly it's another drama about Y2K or something. I don't know. It doesn't sound too interesting to me. Well, the, you know, I can't say anything about it because he's still working on it. I've seen I it, yeah. But Mickey Rourke, Joaquin D. Almeida from Desperado, mm-hmm. John Cleese, Fanny mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Ardant. So I, I, what the hell? But, you know... If it's a serious film, well, no, it's a black comedy. Uh, I don't know where that came. Maybe somebody says, oh, Roman's working on a black comedy. The film takes place on New Year's Eve, 1999, dinner party in Gestad. Okay. that uh, Hopefully that'll spare us some weird Mickey Rourke accent. <laughs> but he's been known to do them. But, yeah, that's our Roman Polanski show. Yes. Thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed our little drawing room chat on Roman Polanski and his films. And next week, we will be talking Satan in the 70s, satanic cult films of that era. And we've got uh, some good stuff on tap there. We're going to be talking about 12 or 13 films, all involving not just devils or like The Exorcist or something like that. We're talking about specifically cults. films that involve yeah. cults. Yeah. 
So, uh, you know, it's not just witchcraft, it's not possession. It's it, These are people that you're going to see a bunch of people run around in robes and you know, worshiping the devil and whatever the hell else happens after that. Uh, some of these pictures are pretty eerie. Yes. They, they're very weird. They're very eerie. And they were chosen jointly and separately and blah, blah, blah. For their, some people could watch these things and smile and like, ah, but, you know, they're really very strange. And mm-hmm. this we'll get into next week uh, or when you hear this, <laughs> when you when you hear that show. Was, was certainly trying to also get into why these things were made and the reactions to them and some interesting tidbits about some people that appear in them. Oh, yeah. But you basically are usual. You know what to expect. <laughs> yeah. uh, so if you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker, musician, you'd like to join us in here, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We're also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. Of course, we're on Podbean, Podbean.com. We're on iTunes, uh, which is, you can just search us as Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast, or we are specifically at ID 5534 Also, we're on Spotify, and we are on Amazon Podcasts. Again, look us up on the Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. Anything else you want to say before we close out? No, no. I'm glad we got around to the Roman Polanski show. I look forward to next week. So, yeah, we're moving along. Enjoy your summer. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. 
This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines from politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G. And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. And try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network, on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some hard-earned lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner, fellow seekers of truth, in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you, only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. Hi ho, how are you doing? You there? Hello? Oh, there you are. <laughs> yeah, because I had this turned down when uh, I usually do the YouTube things. You know, yeah. I have to 
fussing with all this stuff. Right. You know, I got this because somebody recommended it. PreSonus audio box USB. It's like software comes with it. All right. this stuff. But I'm never happy with the way it sounds because my voice should sound like this. Yeah. And it doesn't really. I have the setting that, though I, I'm on camera here with this not cheap Logitech camera, the audio, I have it set where the camera's not picking up the audio, but uh, it's going through the software, but it just never sounds like that. Weird. So I, I bought this thing because, you know, I have the Pure Super 55 yeah. mic. You know, playing live, it's that kind of mic. So I plugged it into this audio box thing, and it's like dead. It's just like, you know, and, it's, and I'm using an XLR, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's XLR input. So I'm like looking around, looking around. Apparently, Shure sells this thing that looks like a a vaping device. (laughs) So you you put your XLR on the bottom and a USB connection that's cables included. Right. It goes through this and uh, it's a monitor. You have a mic game, volume. And we're going to see how this works. Mm. It's supposed to be plugging directly into the computer. And we'll see what happens with that. I, I just got this last night, but, you know, I didn't want to fuss with it in case I knock out the audio. They're like, oh, no, I got a show tomorrow. <laughs> so how's everything else going? Good? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, just all this humidity, I just, yeah. you know, it's... Even when they don't say it's hot, I go outside for a couple minutes, I'm like, ugh. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, I didn't think it was supposed to be this humid, you know. Oh, it's not hot today, it's gorgeous, somebody would say. And like, you get suckered into it, you know, same here. <laughs> yeah, you know, like uh, I, went to, I went into the city to go to work Wednesday, and halfway down the block, I'm like, oh, I, sh- I should have, you know. There was a period in my late teens, early 20s when I loved the summer. And now I just, I can't stand it. Uh, it's just all the sun, which, you know, I don't really like in the first place. I don't like sun beating down on me. I'd rather have, like, an overcast sort of a day. You know, maybe you're peeking through the clouds, but nothing bright and in your face. And I can't stand the damn humidity. So between the two of them, it's like, uh, nah, just leave me inside for the entire summer until... Actually, mm-hmm. nowadays it starts in the spring and ends in December. <laughs> Freaking summer. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, give me something nice and cool, and I'm happy. Yeah, it's, uh, we haven't had a summer this humid in a while yeah last summer wasn't like this which is why the wife keeps complaining like last night she came home and she's like the banister's still sticky and i'm like i know i'm sorry i should do it <laughs> i didn't expect it to be this damn humid of course you know? and i could i can't put a fan in the hall <sighs> i suppose i could to like trying to dry out the uh banister but then the, the cat would get out and i i don't let her out for a while now because she used to go on top of the banister you know cats yeah. they do all kinds of crazy but it's still sticky i don't want her to get the shit on her or even lick it so, so what are you doing you're varnishing it are you shellacking it well you know it's old house and you know when you go in the front door downstairs there's this really nice retro it's probably original uh wood banister that goes up to my apartment upstairs and uh I said, you know, I went to the place, I bought a small can of wood stain, because I even did that to the door, and it worked out nice mm-hmm. uh, last year. So I wood stained it. It took me like two hours. The banister, you know, looks really nice. Mm-hmm. And then every time she comes home, which is like, you know, once, or t- once a week, it's on her hands, and now I'm like, great, I got fingerprints all over <laughs> you know. yeah. Just hold on to it where it's not sticky, you know. 
but uh, what kind of worms were you using? It's got it's that tacky. I mean, I know the humidity gets to it, but no, it's the the small can of the wood stain. You know, it's a good brand. So, yeah. You know, it's got a little oil base in it, so you shake it up and you mm-hmm. go on with a brush. Yeah. But it's there's just no air in the in the in the hallway. Yeah. You know? There's no air, and if it's super humid out, it's just like oh. So how's your speakers in your wall after the cat? To... <laughs> Oh, yeah. Well, I told, you know, she came back uh, Friday night, and it's the first thing she asked, you know, because I came home that day, Wednesday, and I was like, hey, Bowling, and then I looked, and I just lost my shit, you know, <laughs> yelling at the cat, and like, what's wrong with you? And, and had no idea what was wrong with it. I hope you didn't hurt it too much. <laughs> no, I, no, I didn't. I, I don't mean that, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I get upset. <laughs> Because I have the same uh, thing. They, living with cats, they're always going to break your good stuff, unfortunately. So you gotta get, you got to decide, like, all right, who do you love more, the cat or this thing? Well, <laughs> yeah, but, you know, I had a, I used wood fill on the uh, wood filler on there. I'm always doing something. I used wood filler on the door, which you know is, like, orangey. I sanded that down. The next day I had to paint it. Yep. You were two or three huge fucking holes in the door. Because this thing came down and hit the door. I think you had a picture of it, so yeah, I saw that. <laughs> and, uh, you know, the speaker's laying there, the grill's off. <laughs> there, there was not only pieces of the edge of the speaker on the floor, there was pieces of wood from the door. Ah, oh, jeez. And didn't you say she pulled the wires or something, too? Some, some yeah, of the speakers messed yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Did you get it fixed? I mean, in terms of working again? Mm-hmm. Okay, that's good. That's the important part. <laughs> and I went to the hardware store because I was looking for some kind of uh, rubber hinge that it could glue onto the. You know, it'll happen again, right? <laughs> um, they, they, I explained to them what happened. And they didn't know what the hell I'm talking about that I want. <laughs> so I bought about two feet because they only sell two feet of this. The guy make money, right? Of this heavy duty rubber hose okay that i said can you can i cut this easy oh yeah fuck it's so <laughs> hard to cut it so i measured it you know the the length because right. i figured if this goes down i want something to to take that impact you know so uh it was so hard to cut it so i cut the i cut the the amount they needed then i slid it open you know, very carefully so i didn't cut my damn hand off and um i glued one part of it and I'm just waiting a few more days that solidify, and then I'm going to maybe try to glue it down She's some more. Let's start with that. My wife's asking about where the other person is. We'll talk about that a little bit later. Yeah. So, yeah, I'll try to glue down the other piece. Or maybe see if I have a space where I can lay it down and uh, for a day, you know? Yeah. And uh, just the weight of that will keep the uh, rubber on. Um, yeah, it's always something, especially when you got cats. <laughs> well, you know, Skype is new. I got the new version because I must have signed out, so I had to sign back in. Okay. And it's got all those extra stuff. We got like love stickers, and <laughs> it has a share screen button now that's more easy to find and add participants. Ah, so they're trying to be Zoom. Yeah, yeah, that makes be. sense. You got the oh yeah. See, I'm looking over here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it says grid view, together mode, show myself in the grid, enter full screen, new, new call screen beta. Oh, this is the new beta version. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to say the same one you do then. 
I haven't messed with anything in it. All right, so you want to test this so we can get going? Yes, indeed. All right. Okay.